Hello friends, how are you? My name is Colm and this is the Sober Mess podcast and you're very welcome. Today I'm joined by my pal Andrea Ashley. Andrea is the host and producer of The Adult Child, a weekly podcast about the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. So I'm absolutely chuffed and delighted to talk to her about all things dysfunctional and all things growing up. So Ashley, how are you? Uh, Andre, how Andrea, are you? It's okay. <laughs> and I just want you guys to know, he has a podcast voice. Oh, thank he you. He has a podcast voice, folks. And a, he and laid that shit on once he, he, he clicked record. So yeah, I want you all to know. Yeah, the, the Dublin accent uh, was put into the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> the radio voice came the, the Jazz FM. Drive yeah. you home. <laughs> Drive you home this nice <laughs> evening. <laughs> I have to have you on my podcast and read some ads and shit. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Dude, yeah. Yeah, baby. <laughs> oh hell? my god. Yeah. Yeah. Read you guys should hear when he talks before we record. I mean his voice is like about like he sounds like a girl. It's like a five octaves higher. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. So how are you getting on? Hi. I'm okay. Yeah. yeah, and so I told him that he can pronounce my name however he wants because he gets a free pass because he's has an accent or I have the accent, but you have an accent to me. But it's Andrea. Andrea. And my last name really is Ashley. Ashley. I'm afraid that people think that like I'm have you seen on like Facebook how there's like girls who put their middle name as their last name and I'm scared to death that people think I'm one of those people. Oh my god. Like my my middle name is like Colum Anthony Michael. Yeah. Like of all these Irish names, I love that. I love the way you're sober. How many sober. names do you have? I have five. Okay, I don't know. It's why? an Irish thing, but I love the way you're, you're sober and your initials is R A A. No kidding, I was destined. A A. That's that's that. That was meant to be. Destined you're meant. To, you're meant to be out of control alcoholic, down from the womb, as they say. Absolutely, I didn't stand a chance. Yeah, yeah. I understand. I feel like, like, if I was to look at like all, everything went against me, like I, I grew, grew up in an alcoholic home, dysfunctional family, childhood trauma, with ADHD, and all the alcoholic genes. You know, I grew up in Ireland. You know, it all everything pointed for me to be an alcoholic. Like you know, it's like I had all the I had the nature and the nurture. What percentage of Irish people do you think are actually alcoholics? Oh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, to be honest, like Ireland gets a bad rap about the drink, but I've I've travelled a fair bit, and there's a lot of countries out there that drink very similar to Ireland, like you know. But like, it's mainly Americans. I think like Ireland is just just a big bunch of alcoholics. Now, in fairness, we are fond of the drink. Like everything in Ireland is planned around drinking, like the ch- the wedding, the christening. Opening, opening the shop, opening a letter, you know, whatever it is, everything. Uh, yeah, like everything's like planned around alcohol, like in fairness. But um, yeah, I suppose you go to other countries and they're, they're just as heavy with the drink as well, like you know. But like I remember when I was in America and they were like, "You're sober." Like, like even when I go to like when I'm away in a hostel and I meet like American people, like you're you're sober, Irish man. It's like rarer than a leprechaun. Like what's what's going on? Like you know. <laughs> What about, um, are there, because I got sent to rehab for the first time in the eighth grade at 14. Are there adolescent treatment centers? Yeah, I know there is. There's a place down in Kilkenny you go when you're like, 
when you're under 18 and it's actually really good yeah, a few of us actually went down and done like an AA talk down there like a sober talk uh-huh. and uh, no it's really good to see and I think there's a lot more young people getting sober as well which is great you know because in Ireland there's a real mad stigma about getting sober like it's that, it's that old story you know this fella is talking to his friend and he goes oh I, I heard I hear John died like how did he die oh, he was he was like a chronic alcoholic you know he died with cirrhosis of the liver and his friend was like oh my god did he ever go to AA and he's like no god no he wasn't that bad <laughs> I like that <laughs> yeah. but that's the thing it's like people rather like stay like in rock bottom with drink and then admit they have a problem and go to a meeting like I go and say right I'll knock it on the head like you know but there's a lot more there's a lot in fairness saying that now there's a lot more other movements like there's one year no beer there's life circle there's all these like non-affiliates of aa that our people are using to get sober because i think saying people don't like the whole label of being saying they're alcoholic or the whole god thing around aa or the 12 steps so they're kind of finding their own little way but i think the most important thing is that is the community that when you're around like so people that are almost who are also sober it, it kind of ma- it makes it more comfortable. It makes you feel normal. You're getting a sense of friendship and camarader- camaraderie that you don't feel you're alone and you have a support group around you. And I think that's like the most important aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the, the whole the whole stigma with, with saying you're an alcoholic, I just I just can't relate to it at all just because I've I've been calling myself an alcoholic longer than I've not been calling myself an alcoholic. <laughs> you know what I okay. mean? Like, like literally, you know, I went to my, so this is a funny story. I went to my very first meeting with my mom when I was 12 and I raised my hand and I said, hi, I'm Andrea and I don't want to be an alcoholic. <laughs> and I was in treatment less than a year and a half later. Oh, that's gosh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, it is. Like, I think uh, the whole thing is meant to be, like, deflating your ego. So it doesn't matter what part of the social ladder you're on, what your career is, what your background is. Like, oh, you come into AA and say, hi, I'm Colm, alcoholic, or hi, I'm Andrea, it's an alcoholic. It's not like, hi, I'm Colm, king of the north, and you're Andrea, the peasant from the south. Like, you know, it's just like everyone's in the same boat. It doesn't matter where you come from, where you are. And you're just coming in and we're all the same and equal and we're all just trying to get sober and help help each other, you know, and I think that's the whole thing about it. But like when you when you look like when you kind of look at some of the uh, the narrative there, you know, character defects, you know, I'm defective or, or you know, I'm clean or whatever the wording is, it's gonna say, Oh, well I'm not I wasn't that, but like now I am. It's like this self um just self awareness and just you I suppose the wording can be a bit put a lot of people off as well but as well as it worked for me you know what I mean that's like I think you need to find what works for you and if it works for you then go for it like no I don't have an issue with it so yeah yeah but so, so coming from like San Francisco and um, I say you're not from you're from Philly and then you move to San Francisco and then I've actually been I've, do you know what I done a I done a sober talk in San Francisco a few years ago I was backpacking and I got asked to speak at the sober thing and uh, I remember being dead nervous, freaking out, going, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? And I got a rock into this, like, this big giant play. It's, I think it was called the Log Cabin or something like that. It's the name of the centre. And I go in, and it's, like, like 100 people, 150 people. 
and they're all there to hear me telling a story about sobriety. Was it and, an AA meeting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was I go, it in the city? It was in a, it was in, no, it wasn't in San Francisco, it was in LA. It was okay. called like the log cabin or something like that. But there was like 150 people at it. It was massive. It was huge. And I saw Rocky in and I was freaking out going, what am we going to talk about? Like, you know, and I get up onto the stage and I'm seeing all these people and I'm like, oh my God. And they had like, they had like this massive like barrel full of coffee. So I'm like hammering coffee into me. I must have about five liters of coffee and a red bowl to help with my anxiety. You know, right? Coffee helps anxiety. Yeah, <laughs> and, no, uh, the opposite. They're yeah. like, okay, this guy might not drink, but he's yeah. like totally on meth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably thought I was on crack. I'm off to drink, but I'm on the crack. And uh, I share, I share like, an, uh, I think I squeeze an hour story into like five minutes. I was like, already having like an Irish accent, I sped it up, I sped it up even faster. And I remember like at the end of it, I just opened the meeting to see did anyone else want to talk, if anyone had any questions. And no one, like no one spoke and it was so awkward. And I asked him going to front row if he wanted to say a few words. And he was like, man, I didn't hear a goddamn thing you said, but I love your accent. (laughs) I was like, oh my God. But um, Andrea, come here. Tell me, tell me how. Tell me about your background. Tell me about your story. Where Where did it all start for you? Um, so I found out that my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven. So I'm an only child, which I think that that definitely played a large role. Like going through my childhood, being the only one. I think definitely like had a, had a large impact in, in how it impacted me. But I found out my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven. We were out to dinner uh, one night and I could tell that something was wrong. And at a certain point, my mom took me to the bathroom and I said, what's wrong? She said, I'm an alcoholic. And I clearly had no fucking clue what that meant. And, uh, and I said, what does that mean? And she said, that means I can't drink. And it was like, even though I had no idea what that meant, there was a part of me that knew exactly what it meant and it was almost like I went to bed that night and I woke up the next morning having skipped like several stages of development and I just developed this this sixth sense that I think so many of us who grew up with an alcoholic parent develop where I would just feel it in my bones like hours before my mom would even pick up a drink you know like I just I just knew And, um, you know, my dad traveled a lot for work and the times my mom drank the most was when he was out of town. And when he was in town, he, like, I was like his sidekick. We would search the house for her booze. I remember at one point going into the liquor cabinet and taking like a paint stick and like marking and measuring like each level of the bottle. And this is like as an eight year old, um, But what I like to say is that I really think that my first addiction was to the chaos and dysfunction within my home. Like, I remember sitting on the steps, listening to my parents fight and just like getting an adrenaline rush from it. And um, it was a secret. Like, it was a secret from everybody else. And my dad used me as his emotional confidant and support because nobody else knew about my mom's drinking. You look like you're about to say something, are you? No, I'm just fascinated, but okay. I've never okay. heard it said. But that, when you just said that, I was like, wow, well, yeah, I can relate to that so much. Yeah. And um, and so when I was nine, I started to develop separation anxiety. So, like, I couldn't spend the night away from home. 
I had to sleep in my mom's bed. And there was just some circumstances that like led up to that. But eventually they took me to a therapist. And I remember asking my mom years later, did you ever tell that therapist that you were an alcoholic and that you and dad fought all the time? And her response was, no, it didn't seem relevant. (laughs) (laughs) And so I became the, you know, not just the scapegoat, but what I like to say, like the identified patient of the family when I was nine. And, um, what does that mean? And I truly, well, I was the problem. Like I was the, I was the one with the issue, right? Like I was the one that needed to get sent to therapy when in reality, I was, I I did a reel about this. It's like, I wasn't the problem child. Like I was the child trying to like communicate the problem of the family. So you took the attention off your parents and you were kind of. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And it didn't really work. Like my mom kept drinking. My parents kept fighting. But when I started drinking and using drugs at 12, that fucking worked. That worked in saving the family. And from the ages of 12 to 19, I was in and out of rehabs and boarding schools. And my mom didn't really drink. And my parents didn't really fight because they they had come together to deal with me. Wow. And, um, I mean, there's, there's so much there, um, you know, in my, um, in my drinking, um, But I think one of the, one of like the the most pivotal things for me. So in the seventh grade, I became like overnight, I became like the school slut and the girl that no one was allowed to be friends with. And that is really when I feel like shame became my identity. I don't know if you're familiar with the term toxic shame. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a fabulous book by John Bradshaw, but toxic shame is internalized shame. And so when we internalize an emotion, we no longer feel that emotion and we believe that we are that emotion. So when somebody internalizes shame, they no longer feel it. They believe that they are it. And I feel like obviously the situations with my parent and parents and being sent to the therapist, like, and being deemed the problem, that was the beginning of, of shame being internalized within me. And then this experience in the seventh grade just like really, like really just drove it home. And what happens when that, when, when shame becomes a child's identity, one of two things happen. They either go the, the shameless acting in route, which means they try to avoid any future shaming incidences. They try to be perfect or, and this is the route that I took, they go the shameful acting out route. which is essentially where they lean into the shame and just perpetuate more of it. Mm. And that was definitely the route that I, that I took. So it's like, like this self-fulfilling prophecy that they thought you were like, say whatever you were. And then you were trying to uh, become that because that's what I am anyway. So what's the point of, of not being that, but like, did you at that age, did, were you, were you telling yourself you were doing this to save your parents' marriage or were you even aware of it at the time? It was only looking, or were you doing it more to kind no, of numb out the it's feelings? it's all subconscious, right? Okay. It's all subconscious. Um, and also too, I mean, I, I mean, alcoholism is on both sides of my family hardcore. So it's like, I didn't stand a chance. 
And um, I would say, I would say 16 is when, do they use this expression over in Ireland about like alcoholics being pickles? Oh uh, yeah. Pickles yeah. to cucumbers. Mm-hmm. Once a, once a cucumber becomes a pickle, it can never go back to being a cucumber. Yeah. And, so uh, it's like if you ever, as soon as you cross that road or that line with alcoholic drinking, you'll never go back to just drinking like I say a lady or a gentleman that it's always crazy drinking that if as soon as you mm-hmm. have one drink or no matter how long you're you're you abstain from drinking that as soon as you have one you just go bananas that's your new norm yes yeah and so for me i feel like i really crossed that line around 16 and um i'm the type of drinker who has a severe personality change so when I drink, all of my worst qualities are like magnified to the millionth degree. I do think that a large part of that, though, has to do with the shame because I don't want to give you you're going to I know you're going to decide that you don't like me. I know that you're going to decide that you don't want to be my friend. So instead of giving you the opportunity to do so. I'm just going to make sure you don't like me from the beginning. Again, none of this is conscious. But um, I was just a fucking mess. When we're sober mess. I mean, I was a drunk mess. I'm a sober mess. Uh, but here is, I think this is like a story that really illustrates why you and the rest of the world should be grateful that I don't drink anymore. So it was, I was a senior in high school. So I became a daily drinker around 16. And I was always a daily pot smoker um, all day, every day. And I found that like the weed was not as potent as what is, what's this marijuana situation over there? It's, it's illegal, but it's like, I think a lot of people still smoke. Everywhere. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <clears throat> so it's so, it's so much more potent now, but back then, um, you know, it wasn't. And when you smoke all day, every day, sorry, I keep checking to see if my cat wants to come inside. Um, when you, when you, (laughs) when you, uh, when you, I I stopped getting high. Like I I just kind of smoked to be normal and I would drink to get fucked up. So I'm a senior in high school and I get invited to this birthday party. It was my, some friends of my boyfriend. And, uh, initially they told me that if I wanted to come, I couldn't drink at all, but then I was able to negotiate to beer only. And that was because of some recent incidences that had occurred when I was with this group of people where I mean, I just caused scenes like I was that gal. So I negotiated to beer only. Before I went to the party, I drank a bottle of wine by myself. I went to the party fully intending to only drink beer. But as you know, I'm an alcoholic and my intentions don't mean shit. So it wasn't long after being at the party that I start getting into the liquor. And then it's not long after that that I am being kicked out of the party and and drove home by two people. So what did I do? Well, I called a taxi and I had the taxi take me right back to the party. And when they weren't super thrilled about me being there, well, I caused quite a lot of noise. I created quite the scene, causing the neighbors to call the police and everyone at the party got arrested for underage drinking. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) payback <laughs> that was me yeah. including me though including yeah. me though <laughs> no payback 
<laughs> so what? So when you drank, you just became out of control, just antisocial, just sloppy, angry and, just yeah. sloppy, just yeah. annoying to be around. And was your mom that type of drinker? No. Now, now, kind of. Okay. What happened was once I got sober at nineteen, my my mom's alcoholism picked up like where it had left off. Okay. Um and. Both of them, I would say they're both alcoholics now. They're definitely both active alcoholics. Um, and it's really, it's really sad and it's really painful. Are you still drinking today? Yeah. 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 Like my mom fell down the stairs a little less than a year ago and broke her heel. Um, it's, it's, this disease is so fucked up. Yeah. It's mine. You know? Yeah. And how how did you feel like how was it getting sober at nineteen? Was did you find that difficult, like seeing your friends and all still being out there party? No, well that's the thing, it's like I didn't have to worry about the people, places and well, I didn't have to worry about I didn't have friends. Like I really didn't. Like it so it wasn't like I had to deal with you know, saying no to like old friends and not spending time with them. Like I was so isolated. I was so isolated and it was, I remember when I was a senior in high school, just sitting alone, drinking by myself, thinking that, oh, well, next year when I go to college, things are going to be really different. And really being convinced that the problem was what had happened to me when I was in the seventh grade and that somehow this had just kind of left this mark on me. Like I was just kind of tarnished in a way, like it was, I had become this, this pariah and that things would be different when I went off to college and things weren't any different when I went off to college. Like I was still the girl that no one wanted to be friends with. I was still the girl that was super sloppy at parties that was being asked to leave. And so it was, um, it was, it was, um, it, Early sobriety was actually like quite amazing because young people, the young people's AA where I got sober in Jacksonville, Florida was starting to, to really flourish. And so having friends and things to do was, um, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing, but I had no idea like what, (laughs) what lay ahead And that like my alcoholism was truly just like the tip of the iceberg. And I'm glad that I didn't know that because I'm not sure that I would have stayed sober. Mm. So you just kind of, as time went on, did you just feel that sobriety was just getting more and more difficult and a lot of childhood stuff was coming up? It was, it was my picker. What's a picker? So (laughs) my man picker. Okay. <laughs> so cho- choice and like in choice and men, your relationships and things like that. Yeah. So like, I think that everybody comes into sobriety with like a broken picker, generally speaking. <laughs> I don't think that like we, we come into the rooms of recovery with like high self-esteem and like a long history of healthy romantic relationships. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. So my, my picker was broken. What and, is uh, that? Is that like, it's so, it's so true though, isn't it? It's like, 
your 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 I suppose the quality of your relationships with your parents as a kid will reflect the quality of your relationships as an adult. Like you know, you'll just keep replaying the same soap opera, but just on a different TV. Like you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I my so you know all of my other friends that I got sober with too, they had broken pickers. But what started to happen was their pickers started to improve. And I saw them slowly over time find themselves in healthy romantic relationships. And not only was that not happening for me, it was like in each relationship, I I was getting worse. Like I felt enacted like crazier than the last one. And I was like in more pain than the last one. And I couldn't figure out like what the fuck was wrong with me because it wasn't like I was somebody who hopped from one relationship to the next. Like I would take significant breaks in between relationships and I would be feeling good about myself. And I would promise myself that I was not going to ignore red flags that I was going to do things differently than I had done in past relationships. And time after time after time, I kept finding myself in the same situations. What what was the same situations? Like what was the type of relationships you get into? Either emotionally unavailable or active alcoholics. Okay. And you'd like try and fix them or mend them or look for approval or attention. It was just, it was just as soon as I, as soon as I entered the relationship, it was like, I just became like a hostage to it. Like once I decided that I liked somebody, which I didn't like most people. So like when I decided that I liked somebody, maybe after like one or two dates, it was like I stopped gathering any further information, right? It was like, all right, like I'm in it to win it, baby. Like this, <laughs> got to make this shit work. And what I didn't realize that what I was experiencing in relationships was a trauma response. Like I had no idea that what I was experiencing was complex PTSD. And we can get into that. But what happened was because there's a shitload of people and there's a shitload of people in the rooms of AA who don't realize that that's what's going on with them. Um, And so at seven years sober, I dated Brian number one for less than a month. It was, you need to go listen to my very first episode, folks. It's called adult child. And while I'll never date another guy named Brian, (laughs) So I I dated Brian number one for less than a month. It was very clear within, I don't know. I mean, on the first date when he asked me why I wasn't drinking and I told him I was sober and then he said, oh, that's great. Um, I've actually been trying to cut back on my drinking and haven't been too successful. So I think it's great that you don't drink. Like, so like red flag, red flag, red flag. Um, So we dated for less than a month and then he ghosted me. And... My reaction was as if my husband of 30 years had just like tragically died in a plane crash. Like I became a a non-functioning human. Like I couldn't go to work. I had to have my mom like come out and take care of me. And 
while I wasn't suicidal, I definitely thought that if this is what life is like with seven years sober, like what the fuck is the point? Yeah. And it was, it was in that pain that I had like two of the most significant ahas of my entire life. The first was there's no way that the way that you're feeling right now could actually be about this person. Because mind you, I had dated this person for less than a month. Like that doesn't make sense as to like why I want to fucking kill myself. The second aha was this is a feeling that I felt often as a child. And it was like the first time that I was able to connect the dots between this, this, this feeling like just the most gut wrenching pain and anxiety that I experienced in romantic relationships and connecting it back to my childhood and it being the same exact feeling that I felt when I had to sleep in my mom's bed, when I felt like I was going to die if I couldn't sleep in my mom's bed. And so that was huge. And it was a couple weeks later that I was at an AA meeting and I heard this woman with over 30 years of sobriety talking about how when she had seven years that she had hit this emotional bottom as the result of a relationship in which she came to terms with the true impact that her childhood had on her. And she mentioned this book, Adult Children of Alcoholic and Dysfunctional Families. Yeah. I go home, I read the book, and my mind is blown. Like, it was the first time I was reading on paper everything that I had thought and felt and did and thought that I was the only one doing it. And the next week I go to that meeting, that woman's there. I run up to her afterwards. I go, thank you so much for your share. And I told her a little bit about what was going on with me. And she looked at me, she goes, Andrea, that's great. But I just want you to know that fixing these issues is going to take a lot more than just reading this book. What are some of the traits of an adult children of alcoholics? <clears throat> that book, like? So, well, the, the one trait that hit me the most was trait 12. So, it is, um, we are, uh, we are dependent personalities who are terrified of abandonment and will do anything to hold on to a relationship in order not to experience painful abandonment feelings, which we experienced from living with sick people who were never there for us emotionally. But like the major traits are like an overdeveloped sense of responsibility, uh, approval seeking, people pleasing, uh, perfectionism, fear of authority, um, addiction to excitement um an inability to feel or express certain feelings um what else i mean really what it what it boils down to is <clears throat> it, i mean it's all codependency rooted for, for the most part and i don't i don't relate to all of them but for me where it really showed up was in romantic relationships yeah, it was just as you're naming all them out, it was hearing just nodding going yep 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 <laughs> If you have not, everybody needs to go and look at the the adult child laundry list because you will shit your pants when you read it for the first time. Um, but so she told me that it was going to take me years and years and years to fix this. And my thought was like, lady, I don't have fucking years. Like I'm 28. I'm basically a senior citizen. And um, I just really hoped that reading this book, I said, I'll take a year off from dating. I was like reading this book and taking a year off from dating. Like surely that's going to be enough, right? Well, just like learning you have cancer doesn't make the cancer go away. Like simply learning that my issues and romantic relationships were connected to my childhood 
like wasn't sufficient enough to produce any sort of change. So enter Brian number two, another alcoholic named Brian. And uh, I, I dated him for six months and that was the most painful six months of my entire life. And this is when I had nine years sober. And it was through that relationship that I was able to grasp just truly how much my childhood had impacted me and that what I was experiencing was trauma. Like what I was experiencing was complex PTSD and that, um, and that actually my, my alcoholism was really just a symptom of that. Like it really changed my perspective. So elaborate a bit on the complex PTSD. Mm -hmm. So, so when we think about like, trauma when we think about we think about this like big t trauma right we think about like going to war or being raped or something like that but you know complex trauma can be very very subtle things and basically it's just whenever a child um doesn't doesn't feel connected or or loved by their parent and none of this is none of this is conscious just so people know but like just like being criticized by your parent, like having a hypercritical parent, um, very, very small things can do it. Um, obviously for me, it was, you know, related to my, to my mother's alcoholism, but it is like experiencing little T trauma throughout your childhood, like over and over and over and over again is actually like way more damaging than experiencing just one big T trauma, like as an adult. So a lot of it is it's, it's this, the subconscious programming, the, the, um, the, the, the limiting beliefs and fears and everything that we come to learn about, you know, ourselves and the world. And for me, this is how it showed up in dating. So number one was like emotional dysregulation. So my mood was totally dependent upon how I felt in the relationship. So if I felt like things were going well, I was at a 10. If I didn't think that things were going well, I was at a zero. And it was just like zero to 10, zero to 10, like no speed bumps in between. Mm. Two would be hypervigilance. So just constantly being on guard for any sort of sign that they are about to abandon me how long it takes for them to get back to me. Like, what do they say? Like they used a period instead of like an exclamation point in a text message, just looking for waiting for the shoe to like the shoe to drop. Right. Just like waiting for any sort of sign that they're about to leave me. And this is something that we develop in childhood, like out of necessity, right? Like when you grow up in a home with trauma or abuse or alcoholism or all that stuff, like, we have to learn how to be that perceptive in order to survive. Right. And, um, and then the last thing was emotional flashbacks. So that's what I'm talking about with that feeling, like the feeling like I was going to die. So an emotional flashback is, so when it comes to this, this childhood trauma stuff, our brain, when we go into a trauma response as a kid, our logical part of our brain like shuts down and our emotional part of our brain like ramps up. And so what's supposed to happen when you get to the other side of like a traumatic experience 
is like you have to kind of process what happened so that things can get filed accordingly, like in our brain. But that never happens for us as kids. And so basically what happens is that anytime something happens that triggers these this unresolved trauma, this unresolved childhood pain, is that you get catapulted back to the same exact feelings that you felt as a kid, except that there's no images associated with it or words like you truly believe that what you are feeling has everything to do with the present circumstance at hand. When in reality, you're having a reaction that is something unresolved from your past. Well, so, so, so that feeling. Yeah, so if you're in a relationship, it can kind of trigger stuff from the past, that fear of abandonment, the fear of rejection. It's like not the current relationship. It's just getting triggered from past things and, and you start reenacting the same trauma response and you don't is, realize that yeah, like you be, don't it feels like it's it feels so real and it feels like it has everything to do with the present circumstance mm, but it and, doesn't and then like does it come down to then your attachment type that if you're an avoidant you'll run away and if you're insecure you'll get more claws on and yeah i think that i think that attachment style really is all tra- trauma-based too hold on i need to let my cat in yeah no do you have any pets? Uh, no, we have a couple of plants though. They're on the way out. Couple plants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. What's your cat's name? Kiki. Kiki, cool. Um. And so, so yeah, it was, I, I realized that, um, that really that that's what my alcoholism and addiction was really based in was it was a symptom of, of this unresolved trauma. Like this was the way that I was trying to, um, to self-medicate from that. I was under the impression that because I was never physically or sexually abused, because my parents never told me that I was a piece of shit because my wants or my needs had always been accounted for. And most of my wants had always been accounted for because I, we belonged to the country club because we went on nice vacations because I became the problem child at the age of 12. Like how bad could it truly have been? Mm. And the fact of the matter is it really was bad. It really impacted me a whole hell of a lot. I think it impacts people. It doesn't matter about like the the nature what of what is. happened, but it's how you process it and, and and like how it affects you. You know, there's so many different factors that go into it. And here's the thing too: it's like it doesn't matter that like as an adult, when we reflect back on what happened to us, like if we view that as traumatic or not. Like as kids, we don't have that sort of perspective. Yeah, like it could be like your your man left and never came back and that affected you or it could be your ma came went to the shop once and she never brought you a chocolate bar back from the shop like and that affected you just the same as someone else that they they were totally abandoned and like, yeah it's, 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 i think it's just how we process it like and would you would you think that how your i suppose adult relationships were was like sole core cause of your relationships with your parents growing up 
Yeah. And I think that they like layered on top of each other, but it was like, yeah, it was like one it's right. It's this like repetition compulsion. It's like dating the alcoholics. It's like me okay. trying to get them sober because I yeah. couldn't get my sober. Yeah. And then part of it too is like the emotionally unavailable part, like me trying to get the love for my dad that I never got. Yeah. But here's what it is. It's like, this is why when I talk about that, you get like sucked in so quickly. It's like, say you're dating somebody and it's like at the first sign that they might not be like interested in you, that, that triggers something like within, right? Because as a kid, I learned to associate feeling insecure with love. Mm. That's what I learned to associate with. So it's like, as soon as I get a sign that maybe they're not interested in me, well, that triggers my shit. And then let's say I hear from them. Well, then I get that feeling of relief. Mm-hmm. And so then that sets off that pattern of anxiety, relief, anxiety, relief, anxiety, relief. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about a trauma bond. I get you, yeah. And then so then you're constantly seeking it. You're seeking the highs and you're seeking the lows. You're seeking validation. Did they text me back in time? Did they have enough words in the message? And already, you know, even if though it feels like shit, like even though it feels like shit, but it's what we know. Yeah. So essentially, someone that has like an avoidant attachment style will tend to go for someone that is an insecure attachment style, you know, and just that does the dance or plays plays the game, so to speak. But how, mm-hmm. how, and I could relate a lot to that stuff you said. It's particularly around what you were saying, like the the overreaction to things. You know, when something doesn't work out, and you just you know, you like you have a nuclear reaction to some situation, and it's just exaggerated. And it, but again, it's, it's triggering uh, trauma responses, and you know, the things around relationships, and yeah, like how when you got on recovery, like how did you address that and get better at it? Well, have you heard the term? If it's hysterical, it's historical. No. Oh, okay. Well, like, okay, yeah. So if it's making you hysterical, it's historical. Like it's from the history. It's from your past, which is triggering you. Okay. Mm-hmm. So anytime you have an overreaction to something, like it's rooted in something that's unresolved from your past. Um, and um, so I, here's the problem too. And this is like a, a common experience for so many adult children is, we spent years and years and years and years and years in therapy without our therapists being able to identify like, this is what the fuck was going on with us, which is unfortunate. But um, I found a therapist out in San Francisco who like, this was her area of expertise. Like she was an adult child and she really understood dysfunctional family dynamics the trauma of growing up in an alcoholic family, like the back of her hand. And um, I started working with her twice a week. I saw her twice a week for like the first year and a half and then continued to see her for a year. But it's like, you know, it's, it continues, but it's just like, it's peeling back these layers of the onion. It is processing this unresolved trauma. Okay. It's understanding why you are the way that you are, but there's so much like, it's just, it's a long process. What, were, a some lot of the, it, what were some of the revelations gone through to see in the process? God. 
you know, I think for me, it, because I never experienced verbal abuse, because my parents never told me that I was like a piece of shit, it was, it was really mind blowing to me to understand how at my core, how unlovable and inherently flawed like I actually believed that I was because on the surface I didn't feel that way but my reaction my my behaviors clearly showed that I did and I think that that sometimes can be the issue with experiencing more subtle forms of abuse and neglect is that it can be really difficult to identify what are those core limiting core beliefs? Because for somebody who is told, like if, if your parent told you that you were a piece of shit or you have those memories, it's a lot easier for you to kind of identify that that's what you believe. But since I was never told those things, it was just so insidious. Um, and so it's really just been like like unpacking that and um you know one of the i mean the, the biggest thing for me was like the when i when i hit when i finally hit bottom in 2018 after Brian number 2 it was the realization of like how much i had been selling myself short in life like I had never really considered what a fulfilling career would look like for me i was a, an accountant at the time i was a cpa and so I realized that I just had all of this, like I was just had all this potential and talent within me that I was wasting. And um, I decided like, all right, it's time to figure out like why the fuck you were put on this earth. And so not only did I like embark on this journey to heal from my childhood, I also embarked on this journey to like find my, my greater purpose, like my higher calling. And it was just like a, a crazy experience of learning about myself coupled with very divinely inspired interactions with strangers like on so frequently that led me to to launching the podcast. That's beautiful. That's powerful. Isn't it how like a healing journey, certain people are putting a path for a reason or, you know, we might hear certain things we're meant to hear at a certain time or read certain things we're meant to read at a certain time and it's just it's just part of the healing journey. You just need to be open up to everything, open up to healing. Have you have you forgiven your parents? Oh yeah. Here's the deal. It's like this shit didn't start with them. You know, like this is the disease of family dysfunction. That's the other thing that I want to um emphasize too, is that a lot of people so the term adult child, it, there's a couple definitions, but like one would be um, you know, someone who responds to life with self-doubt, self-blame, or a sense of being wrong or inferior, all as a result of their childhood experiences. Or another way could be, you know, an adult child is somebody who's like unresolved childhood pain, like surfaces and plays out in adulthood and not in a good way. And a lot of people think that the term only applies to people who grew up in an alcoholic family, but there are tons of different types of dysfunctional family systems that can create an adult, an adult child. So uh, you know, like having um, a mentally ill parent or like having a narcissistic parent, um, having your parents be adult children of alcoholics, 
um, hypercritical parent, hypercontrolling parent, growing up in a super religious household. Like there are just so many different types of dysfunctional family systems that can um, that can uh, produce an adult child. But so when I first launched the podcast, when my parents first, when I told my mom and she said, can you please leave me and dad out of this? And at this point, I had spent a lot of time thinking about that and had talked to my therapist about it a lot. And I said, well, I am going to talk about it. I said, but, you know, I'm, I'm really emphasizing that growing up in a dysfunctional family and growing up in a loving family are not mutually exclusive, you know, and my parents are just a product of their upbringing as well. It's like this, our parents didn't just like wake up and like decide to like give us a shitty childhood. Like they're just a result of what they experienced during their childhood as well. So does that mean that I am giving them a free pass? No. Um, Does that mean that I don't still feel angry towards them at times? Does that mean that you have to have a relationship with your parents? No. But it doesn't serve me in any way to, to blame them, you know? And unfortunately... There's nothing that they can fucking do about it. Like they can't go to therapy for me and fix my shit. It doesn't work that way. And I think that when we stay rooted in blaming our parents, that we're really blocking ourselves from the opportunity to heal. That's powerful. Yeah. Like, and that, like that's the one I always came to is that like your parents done the best they had with what they knew, you know, and, yeah, I don't. I don't think like my parents ever like went out. Like I look when I look back now, it's weird. A few years ago, you asked me about my childhood. I tell you, I had a really hard childhood, a really difficult childhood. But if you ask me today, I tell you, I actually had a really good childhood. I had a great childhood, and it's weird just how that when I just I look back in the past now with a lot of compassion and 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 understanding of what, seeing stuff from their perspective of their shoes and. You know, I'm realizing that I've clay feet and I make mistakes as well, you know. And and when I look back now, I don't look at all like all the, as much at the bullshit or the um the the, the turbulence, whatever. I, I look at geez that time, you know, when that, that great thing happened, you know, all the Christmases, you know, we were spot rotten, you know, just the last we had and the relationship that I developed with my parents when I got sober as well. I had a great relationship with my dad, you know, he was he was sober too. He's one of the people that brought me into mm-hmm. AA when I was 21. And, you know, and... and That's and, amazing. Yeah. And, you know, me and my dad, we went to, like, meetings together and AA conventions all over the world. Is he not alive anywhere? No, he passed away three years ago. But I'm we sorry. even But I'm grateful that I got to have that relationship with him before he died, you know. You're so lucky. Yeah, we didn't have a great relationship before. We did, kind of didn't. We had a very turbulent relationship, you know, because I, I... You know, we got a great when I was off the drink. Then when I drank, I think he just got... He got really upset over that, like, you know, because he's seen me and him and he's seen I was kind of at that crossroads where I'm going to go down to this hopeless road of addiction or I'm going to get sober. And he knew I was close to making that decision, like, you know, and uh, yeah, when we got sober then our relationship was was much better. And even that my mom as well, she's an analog and she's like a 12 stepper and through a different, uh, through different um, to have the program and me and Horgan on great. We go to Anlon meetings together, and you know that's um, 
you know, like, I, 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 we're able to have conversations like this, like, you know, about relationships and dysfunction and looking at it from her perspective and looking at it from my perspective and, you know, um, yeah, but in Ireland we have the saying, it's like, I come from a perfectly normal dysfunctional family, that dysfunction is so common, it's just like normal, like, you know what I mean? I think it all over the world, but, you know, here's one thing that's a very common experience and you know, you're so lucky that you get to experience that with your parents. But this is something that I experienced. And it's something that a lot of adult children experience that once we kind of shine a light, we acknowledge the the reality of the family, like we acknowledge the dysfunction. We break away from that and no longer participate in it. A lot of family members like you will then become the problem and the rest of the family will like attack in a way. Mm-hmm. And it's not really conscious, but it's all about like keeping the dysfunction alive and thriving. It's all about keeping people in their particular roles, right? Because it's like we're all playing these roles to kind of keep keep the status quo, right? And by one person acknowledging the dysfunction, by one person seeking help, well, that is an acknowledgement that probably everybody else needs help too, you know? And so that hits too close to home. Mm -hmm. So a lot of family members will then attack that one person. And that was my experience when I started to really work through this shit. Like my parents really lashed out at me. And thankfully, um, that's not really the case anymore. But that is a very, very, very common experience. Well, it's interesting. And it's, it's that thing. Everyone has a different perspective of the past. You know, I'm sure if you ask your parents what it was like, they'll have a completely different perspective on it. Like, you know, their version of events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, yeah that's, that's really powerful. And so how, how do you feel you are today when, in terms of your healing journey? Do you think you've come a very long way? Yeah, I sure as hell have. But there's always more layers of the onion to peel, you know? Yeah. Always. It's never ending. It's never fucking ending. What, so, ad- what advice would you give to someone that's in the grips of uh, all the symptoms or the, 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 the adult child traits of the dysfunctional relationships? Don't try to do it alone. Like you're not going to be able to. You know, I think there's a couple of things that block people from getting the help that they need. I think number one is they think that healing from their childhood is an act of betrayal to their parents. I think what it's important to remember is that talking about what happened to you is not about shitting on your parents. It's about understanding the causes and conditions that made you the way that you are. Uh, another resistance is like the pain because I'm telling you like this stuff is, this stuff is, it's a lot harder and a lot more painful than just like getting sober. Like this stuff is really fucking raw. And so a lot of people don't think that they can handle the pain. Um, and then a lot of people think that they can go through it alone and they're not going to be able to. And so I think it's, Read the, the, the big red book is like the main text for adult children for ACA. And that book blew my mind. So the big red book, you can get that online. 
Uh, yeah. Okay. Every human being, I think, should fucking read that book. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would I would check out my podcast. Um, I would check out ACA meetings. So I have my own community too, because what I found is that, you know, like in AA meetings, we can laugh about our shit, right? Like mm. there's an ability for us to like kind of own it and laugh about it. And I didn't really find that as much in ACA meetings. It was a lot more like doom and gloom. And so I I created my community, which is kind of more like, it's like ACA with a personality. <laughs> you know, so like on children of alcoholics, it's like just for people that don't understand, like don't have never heard of it. It's like its own like recovery program awesome. for, for for people yeah. at, like an adult child a child that's grown up in an alcoholic home or a dysfunctional home, and they're still being impacted at, at, with that as an adult. Mm-hmm. Is that a good description? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's and and, and here's the deal. Like, I think that like. I would say that everybody in AA is probably is an adult child too. Um, it's interesting. I when I had Dr. Drew on my podcast, it's like we all have this shit. It's just that for some people, the pain will never get great enough to where they're like forced to have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Whereas other people like myself, like I was gonna fucking die if I didn't confront it. But like, you know, all those people that are like sitting in AA meetings that have like 20 years of sobriety and they're still fucking miserable. Like those are people who have not dealt with their childhood shit. Mm. Yeah. What else does the help look like? Dealing with your therapy. I mean, it's, but it's hard to find a therapist who really understands this shit, but you know, it's interesting. There's so many different uh modal therapy modalities that could work you know there's tons of different trauma therapies but what the research shows is really what's most important is the relationship that you have with your therapist well so what's most important is just feeling really heard seen understood and safe mm -hmm. with your therapist um so that's it i mean it's 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 trauma right it's and the 12 steps weren't designed to heal trauma necessarily. Yeah. Gabba Mate talks about that a lot. And so, yeah, I don't know. Is there in, in the rooms there, is there like a stigma around external help? Like getting outside no, help? No, I think like support is, you can never get enough support, you mm-hmm. know? And I think it doesn't, if it's like going to an AA meeting, if it's going to therapy, I know I think everyone needs a place they can be vulnerable and open and honest. And I think when we're around friends and families, we're constantly putting on the mask or dodging what's really going on. But I think we all need, like I've been, I've been to therapy loads of times and it's been a game changer for me just to be able to take, be real with someone, be honest, throw it all out there. And someone that like, like you're not afraid, oh geez, what will they think? Or, you know, are you afraid to open up to a friend in case they, judge you or you're afraid to open up to a family member in case they worry about you and just to have someone that you can just open up with and just be be real with like you know and be honest and you know if it's a, a therapist or a coach or you know there's still some people that go for for like confessions to, to like some a clergyman or someone that works in the religion or whatever you know, um, so I think it's just important to have someone there, or even it could be a, a sponsor in in AA. You know, like they have a fourth and fifth step, where 
you know, you're going through all the sort of stuff. But like that, I think a lot of it's, uh, a lot of it's like just scratching the surface, like, you know. Well, the other thing that I think is interesting too is like when it comes from the perspective of character defects. And this was something that re- I, my perspective really changed through my adult child recovery is about how, you know, a lot of these things are not character defects. They're like survival mechanisms that we learned as kids, mm-hmm. you know, that no longer work for us. Yeah. And so for me, it's I felt so much shame about like, I'm praying for this shit to go away. Like I'm yeah. asking God to like remove this shit from me. Like, why isn't it happening? Yeah. Well, because these are fucking trauma responses. Yeah. yeah. Like you can't pray those away. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It's like they, they served at one point in your life, but and they were probably useful, but now they're kind of de- detrimental for you, for your recovery and where, where you are as a person. Absolutely. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. It's this important shit. Yeah, There's a really lot of people in, in the rooms that need to know about this. And that's why mm-hmm. I created my podcast because there's a lot of people out there who don't realize that like the recurring issues that they keep encountering is, is a result of their unresolved childhood shit. Yeah. I love that. Okay. I just, I'm just worried of time. So just before we yeah. finish up, I'm going to ask you a few quick fire questions. Is that okay. okay? Mm-hmm. What's your definition of happiness today? Hmm. Mm, feeling comfortable in my own skin. I love that. What's the greatest advice you've ever gotten? Mm. Ask for help. <laughs> What's the worst advice you've ever gotten? Hmm. <laughs> um. When one time when I was um, freaking out about a guy, I had somebody tell me, just get on those dating apps and just date some more people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just uh, it's, it's like that thing, the same soap opera, but just on a different TV. Um, yeah, I, was like, I don't think you understand this. <laughs> yeah. If you could go back to when you were at your lowest, what advice would you give yourself? It's all going to make sense one day. <laughs> That's not really advice, but it's just, there isn't, there isn't a single dark moment in my life that I can look back on and not see the great purpose in it, you know? I love that. What's something you still struggle with today? God, my head, my thinking, everything. <laughs> what legacy would you... Procrastination. Yeah, what? <laughs> Procrastination. Yeah, same. What uh, what legacy would you like to leave behind? Say that again. What legacy would you like to leave behind? Legacy. I mean, it's reaching as many as many people as possible who don't know that they're an adult child. Okay. To let them know that there's not something inherently wrong with them, that they're okay. just fucked up from their childhood. <laughs> right. I love that. Andrea, it was powerful listening to you. It was powerful yeah, talking was and so I've, I've gotten so much out of this personally. I've been sitting here going, yeah, well, 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 you know, we can identify so much with it. So thank you for being, uh, thank you for being so uh, open, honest and helpful and being exactly who you are. You're shining light. Thank you for having me. Big love, big, big love. You're going to turn 